Hi everyone, and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by BJ Oncology. Today, we have the honour to welcome our esteemed panel of experts to talk about the latest developments in breast cancer presented at the ASCO 2021 annual meeting. Chairing this session with Eric Hamilton from the Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee, and she'll be joined by Giuseppe Carigliano from the University of Milan in Italy, Sarah Tellini from the Dana Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, Massachusetts, and Andrew Tutt from the Institute of Cancer Research in London. In this podcast, the panel will be discussing updates from the Olympia, ECOG, Gepanuevo, and Begonia trials, the use of CDK46, BCL2, and PARP inhibitors, as well as SIRDs. I'll now pass you over to the experts for today's breast cancer session with VJ Oncology. Thank you for joining us on behalf of VJ Oncology. Uh, we're excited to recap some of the most exciting data uh, from ASCO 2021 in the breast arena. I'm Erica Hamilton. I lead the Breast Cancer Research Program at Sarah Cannon Research Institute in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm also joined by Sarah Tulaney. Hi, I'm Sarah Tulaney. I'm a breast medical oncologist at Dana-Farber in Boston. Great to be here. Thank you. And also joined by Andrew Tutt. Hello, I'm Andrew Tutt. I'm uh, the director of the Breast Cancer Now Research Center at the Institute of Cancer Research and Guy's Hospital, King's College, London. So first off, I think, uh, Dr. Tut, you stole the show at ASCO this year with your presentation of Olympia. Uh, would you be kind enough to walk us through that data a little bit and where you see it fits in with practice currently? Thank you very much. It was a great privilege to present Olympia on behalf of uh, the partners. Um, so Olympia was a, uh, is an ongoing study, but it is a uh, phase three uh, randomized trial um, conducted by the partnership of uh, the Breast International Group groups and NCI CTEP groups um, uh, with support from AstraZeneca and Merck, testing uh, the role of um, the PARP inhibitor, Alaparib, after a standard uh, of care, local, regional and uh, adjuvant systemic treatment um, in patients with germline mutations in the BRCA1 or BRCA2 genes and HER2 negative breast cancer with uh, high risk features for distant recurrence um, sufficient to have needed to have at least six cycles of standard of care chemotherapy, either in the neoadjuvant or adjuvant setting. Um, and uh, the main results of the study, which tested a year of um, treatment with Olaparib uh, against placebo, were a, a highly statistically significant uh, effect on the primary endpoint of invasive disease-free survival with uh, a hazard ratio of 0 0.58 um, uh, at a p-value of less than 0 0.001 and an absolute difference in three-year disease-free survival of 8.8%. Uh, um, I think it was important to note that this was uh, a primary analysis performed early because it was stimulated by uh, crossing a superiority boundary at the interim analysis point um, and recommended for reporting by the IDMC. So we were very keen to look in a pre-specified analysis of a mature um, population within the study. The first half of those patients accrued, the first 900 patients out of 1,800. And we saw the same uh, hazard ratio uh, for the IDFS effect in that population. So the IDMC and, and we at Primary Analysis were confident that this was a sustainable 
result. And we could go on and test the very important secondary endpoint of distant disease-free survival, which again was um, uh, has a ratio of, of 0.57, um, highly statistically significant, with an absolute difference of 7.1% at the three-year uh, IDFS uh, rate. Um, overall survival very uh, early, really, with a median um, follow-up of only 2.5 years in the ITT population. So uh, alpha was conserved for future analyses. And although the hazard ratio is 0.68, um, the p-value is 0 0.024. And that is actually not um, uh, statistically significant in the um, statistical analysis plan because we're saving alpha for the later. So the headline really was that the primary endpoint was met. The safety data showed adverse events um, very familiar for the drug in its current indications and with no uh, strong negative safety signal and reassuring preservation of quality of life, um, uh, global quality of life measures uh, between the placebo and the treatment arm. Great. Thank you so much for that. I guess a question that a lot of people are going to have is, do you anticipate an approval based off of this? And because Olaparib is already approved, do you anticipate uh, maybe patients, um, you know, providers being able to get this for their patients ahead of the formal approval? So, I mean, it, it's clear that um, there is now, uh, there will be a, a conversation between um, AstraZeneca, Merck and Global Health uh, authorities in the fullness of time uh, to seek uh, approval, uh, the timing of which I think you you uh, we don't know as academic uh, investigators, but uh, we certainly anticipate those um, those conversations happening. Um, at the moment, it is not an approved medicine in this um, in this uh, population of patients, and I really don't feel comfortable commenting on on whether people should uh, go beyond the licensed indication. Um, uh, to, uh, to to prescribe this medicine. I think this needs to be looked at by the global health uh, medicine regulators. Uh, and we hope those conversations can proceed now with uh, a very good uh, data set uh, that has been published and which is in the hands of those pharmaceutical companies. Great, thanks. Sarah, so I can uh, see a lot of downstream effects of this study. What, what do you think um, are some of the other things that this study may ultimately change for us? Well, first, I will say these are amazing results to see a 40 percent, uh, you know, reduction in IDFS events, I think, is really practice changing. Um, and so I think, you know, I will already say I have patients who have called uh, who have germline BRCA mutations who are asking, um, you know, should I be getting a lap rib now? And so I think this is a, a question that is going to. Um, you know, this is really going to change our, our prescribing practices. But I think moreover, it really highlights the critical importance of testing our patients for genetic mutations. So it's going to be really important that we know which patients have germline BRCA mutations. And, you know, I think Dr. Tung did a great job in her discussion at ASCO really highlighting this problem that, you know, in fact, we are under testing uh, patients in the early disease setting. And I'm hoping this will change things. You know, I think it changed our practice in the metastatic setting when we got data from Olympiad and Embraca, where I think we did start to become better at offering genetic testing to our metastatic patients, knowing it had therapeutic implications, but now it does in the adjuvant setting. And so I think we really need to, you know, bring this to light and make sure we are offering genetic testing to all our patients. Eric, yes. would it be okay for me to comment on that as well? I, again, I agree with Sarah that 
uh, Nadine Tung did a, a very nice discussion of this. And I think, although it's quite common um, in global practice now to test patients with triple negative breast cancer, sometimes regardless of family history, I think one of the big changes is how we think about patients with hormone receptor positive forms of, of breast cancer, um, who we may not have been uh, as triggered to refer for uh, genetic testing. And I think this really does make us need to think really much more about that and in that population um, of patients because it, it could well change the treatment paradigm for them. Um, and I think we're also much more, um, I think these data mean that it, this is not just something that you think about in the risk clinic. This is something that you think about in the in your treatment clinic and you can get results back now in a time frame uh, that uh, you can use to have a conversation with patients about what their treatment strategy might be. In the past, it might take six months and be terribly, terribly expensive to do and we're associated with very um, complex counselling. And I think this is making us think, uh, this is one of the bits of data that I think will make us think that maybe we should be more comfortable as oncologists to suggest testing, um, to know that we'll get the result back quickly uh, and it will be performed or can be performed cheaply and that if that result is positive there may be further things to counsel about with regard wider family history but that can be engaged if needed and we could consent the person to a test rather than them have to go through a deep counseling process bef beforehand we need to think that through because it would be make it much more practical uh, to do uh, the testing in the oncology clinic and get a quick result yeah, I completely agree with both of you. You know, it really wasn't until the approval of Olaparib and Talazoparib in the metastatic setting that our access to uniformly uh, test HER2 negative patients in the metastatic setting came about. So I agree. I think that we're going to see um, some changes in guidelines about broad testing and, and who we test based on this. So Giuseppe Corigliano has joined us. Uh, Giuseppe, would you introduce yourself? Hi, good evening. My name is Giuseppe Curigliano. I work at the European Institute of Oncology in Milano. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So we've just finished uh, discussing uh, Olympia and what we really think are going to be practice-changing results here. Sarah, I may uh, ask you to comment on the ECOG study, uh, specifically about adjuvant capecitabine versus platinum um, and what your takeaways from that abstract were. Yeah, this was a really interesting study that Ingrid Mayer presented at ASCO, really trying to assess in a patient who has residual disease after neoadjuvant therapy that is triple negative and specifically is also of the basal-like subtype, looking to see if platinum chemotherapy would be better than capecitabine in this group of patients. You know, I think we've had a lot of questions about what the role is of platinum in early disease and also you know, how widely applicable the CREATE-X data are from capecitabine and if we could do better. And so this study took those patients who had residual triple negative disease, but in fact, the eligibility was different than CREATE-X because you actually had to have residual T1C disease. So you had to have you know, a bit of disease that was left. Um, and then it specifically looked at IDFS in the basal-like population, really comparing four cycles of platinum therapy, either cisplatin or carboplatin per physician's choice, to um, six cycles of capecitabine. And in fact, what we saw was that 
in essence, there was no real difference in the IDFS. But to me, the, the bigger thing was that the IDFS was actually quite poor in both arms. Um, so at three years, the IDFS was 49% in the capecitabine arm and 42% in the platinum arm. And, you know, this is not what I was anticipating. I think it's worse than, than I would have anticipated. But again, I think these are patients who did have, you know, T1C residual disease and basal-like disease. And I think what we're seeing is that, you know, certainly platinum is not superior, but it's also not non-inferior. Um, so I think it leaves us with capecitabine as the current standard in someone with residual triple negative breast cancer. But it also means we need to do better. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, brings up a good point. So in Olympia, specifically patients receiving adjuvant capecitabine were excluded. Uh, so the so-called create X regimen. Giuseppe, how do you integrate these? If we end up with a laparib approval, um, you know, we obviously have the option of giving pa patients capecitabine as well. Um, do you see the PARP inhibitor data really trumping uh, the CREATE X data here for those patients that may have BRCA alterations? Absolutely, yes. I believe the data Andrew presented uh, should change practice uh, since next week. Because in my opinion here, we have a special population of patients that are BRCA mutant, germinal mutant. And any patient with this type of mutation that we consider at high risk should receive a PARP inhibitor in the post-neoadjuvant setting or in the adjuvant setting if you consider the high risk. I don't believe that we will never do a trial comparing olaparib to capacitabine in this patient population. And personally, I believe that olaparib would be superior to capacitabine. I believe the only question is related maybe to the patient's CR positive. Even if, in my opinion, rather than giving CDK46 inhibitors in this patient population, since they are germinal BRCA mutant, they should also receive olaparib, even if they are HR positive. I will not consider a CDK46 inhibitor in this patient population. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for, for practice. I guess the other hot topic in early uh, breast cancer right now is immunotherapy in the triple negative space. Dr. Loibel presented uh, data from Depar Nuevo, really looking at the addition of durvalumab to chemotherapy. And this adds to our body of evidence in previously reported studies with atezolizumab and pembrolizumab, et cetera. But what's your takeaway from that abstract? Maybe Giuseppe, I'll go back to you. Um, where do you think we may end up uh, incorporating this? And do you think it's ready for prime time now or not? No, absolutely. In my opinion, it's not ready for prime time. The data of the Keparnuevo, of course, are of interest. I believe that the benefit that has been observed in the Durvalumab arm should be better analyzed and should be, of course, considered for future trial. But the study was underpowered to demonstrate a benefit in terms of overall survival. So even if the data are of great interest, I really believe those are not practice changing. You know, in the data, finally, we have a benefit in terms of distant disease-free survival when comparing to the placebo arm, it was 91.7% versus 78%. And also there is a trend in terms of overall survival benefit, 95.2 versus 83.5. But the trial was not designed to have as a primary endpoint overall survival. The primary endpoint of Gepranuevo was a pathological complete response. So even if data are really interesting, even if I was enthusiastic about this, because I hope 
that in the other trials we will have the same results, the data of Gepar Nuevo are not practice changing. Yeah, absolutely. Does anybody else have anything to add to this? Erica, may I just just come back briefly to the the Cape Cytobine discussion, if that's okay? In, Absolutely. In and and it's just to because I know that there have been some questions about this. Um, why we didn't have Cape Cytobine as a control um, in Olympia, and and this is an issue of timing. So Olympia started in two thousand and fourteen and ended in two thousand and nineteen, and CreateX was published at the end of twenty seventeen and didn't really influence practice um, outside uh, you know, Japan and um, Korea Taiwan uh, until you know two thousand and eighteen plus really, uh, and in many countries still still doesn't completely. So um, we just it wasn't that we didn't. Uh, deliberately didn't include it. It's it was not the standard of care. I think I, I would just point people to the fact that this you know Olympia is in basal light breast cancer with a you know the triple negative group at least basal light breast cancer with a BRCA mutation, a biologically refined group of patients in which we have no real understanding of what their Cape Cytobine performance is, except that. The ECOG Akron study certainly says there's a heck of a lot that we need to do better in for basal-like breast cancer, where I just think they look a, a, equally appalling as as, um, as therapeutic strategies, uh, carboplatin and um, Cape Cytobine. So I, I think I would regard the BRCA carrier population, I would have it driven by the result of Olympia rather than Cape Cytobine. And people have wondered, should they wait and maybe when the medicine's approved, obviously, wait, give six months of Cape Cytobine and then give a laparib. And all I'd say there was have a look at those survival curves and look how many events are going to happen in those six months that you're giving Cape Cytobine. And do you really think you're going to prevent those events happening in a BRCA carrier with basal like breast cancer with Cape Cytobine when you know that you might prevent them with a laparib based on the data? Bad things happen early. Um, and I'm not sure that that six months of therapy with Cape Cytobine is 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 that helpful? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you there, right? This is a targeted option with a predictor of response, so it's a hard a hard sell to to not offer a patient that immediately, yeah. right? And, and I think with Gepa Nuevo, I'd completely agree, really, with what Giuseppe has said. Obviously, we may hear data from other studies with other anti PD one, anti PDL one uh, therapies later in the year. Press releases sounding very positive, and that might be data that we need to sit up and. Uh, listen to, um, but but we haven't had a chance to scrutinize that yet. Absolutely. So before we move on to uh, some of our hormone receptor positive abstracts, let's briefly just touch on begonia. Um, this was an abstract that looked at triple negative breast cancer in the first line setting, um, paclitaxel plus durvalumab. Um, there were multiple arms, but one of the other arms that they presented was uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan with durvalumab. And obviously those patients in the trastuzumab deruxtecan arm um, had to also be HER2 low. So they were both triple negative and HER2 low which is a little bit different than the all-comers in paclitaxel durvalumab. Um, but overall response rates with the paclitaxel combo was 56%, um, 66% with the trastuzumab deruxtecan. Um, and so my question, uh, 
walking away from this abstract is certainly impressive response rates there with trastuzumab deruxtecan, but really is um, a benefit of which one, uh, you know, which there are two, two agents here. And with the data we've seen so far with trastuzumab deruxtecan, you have to kind of wonder how much the immunotherapy is contributing here. Does anyone else have any uh, opinions about this or thoughts when they saw this abstract? Uh, you know, I, this is Giuseppe speaking. I was impressed by the results of combining, of course, Durvalumab with Trastuzumab, Deruxtecan. Very few patients. So let's advise the people that here we are discussing of very few patients, but provide the rationale to combine. Maybe in the neo-Aryuvan setting, HER2 positive disease, and maybe in some HER2 low immunocheckpoint inhibitors with antibody drug conjugated. I really believe this combination should be explored first also in the metastatic setting because we cannot ignore the risk of toxicity. Don't forget that both the immunocheckpoint and the antibody drug conjugated can give potential pneumonitis. So we need to better understand the safety, but the potential to combine both of them is impressive because you can induce immunogenic death with the trastuzumab, the ruxtecan, and then you boost the immune system with the duvalumab. So in my opinion, it's a proof of concept study that deserve further exploration with more patients, both in the metastatic and in the neuroarium setting. Sarah, did you have anything to add here? Yeah, I think what I was just going to add to is that, you know, what is really intriguing is that the benefit was seen both in PDL1 negative and PDL1 positive patients. Um, and, you know, it's hard because I think as, as we, you know, everyone's pointed out, these are not randomized data. We don't know what's driving the benefit. And so is it just that TDXD works so well in HER2 low disease that you're seeing, you know, almost a 70% response rate, and that's not going to depend on immunotherapy? Or is there something about the interaction and synergy between an ADC um, with checkpoint, even in a PDL1 negative patient? So it makes you wonder, is there going to be additive benefit in this setting? Um, and so I think this, you know, as Giuseppe said, does need more work because we can't draw any conclusions here. We don't have any control data to know how TDXD actually performs in first line TNBC that's her too low. Their previous data has been in heavily pretreated patients and actually was very limited numbers of triple negative patients. So in truth, we don't know what the control is here. So hopefully we'll see more data to be able to flush this out. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe not practice changing, but I think certainly practice confirming um, is some of the data we saw from Mona Lisa 3 and Paloma 3 um, about the addition of CDK4-6 inhibitors in these studies to full vestrin and really around um, overall survival. Giuseppe, do you want to comment on um, either of these abstracts? You know, potentially, of course, uh, what we have to know is that um, delivering, of course, in the neo arivan setting immunocheckpoint inhibitors, uh, in my opinion, will be the new standard of care in a few weeks from now. I am quite sure because I know that the data with pembrolizumab will be presented during a, a virtual session in a few weeks because it seems that we have a benefit in event-free survival. But, you know, also beyond the triple negative disease, there is also the opportunity to explore this combination also in a positive disease. And many other trials are ongoing, exploring the combination of antibody drug conjugated with immunocheckpoint inhibitors. We will see in the future if this will be practice changing also in this subtype. Thanks. Absolutely. 
What about the uh, overall survival data for the CDK4-6 inhibitors uh, in combination with fulvestrin? So, you know, I, I really believe that in this uh, analysis, further analysis, we just confirmed that CDK4-6 inhibitors plus endocrine therapy should be considered a new standard of care. So I was not surprised about these results as I was not surprised about the results in the endocrine-sensitive disease, because in the, also in the study combining with aromatase inhibitors, even if we have, of course, overall survival as a secondary endpoint, there is a clear benefit from the combination of AI plus CDK4-6 inhibitors. So this confirms that this should be considered a standard of care, I don't believe there will be more space in the future to consider endocrine therapy alone in this patient population. What is the open question is how to position the oral cells in combination with CDK4-6 inhibitors for the future. And here, many abstract has been presented also by you. And this is the major point to discuss here, I believe. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Serge was uh, on my agenda to get to. I think we saw at least four or five uh, presentations of novel endocrine agents. I guess maybe this is a good time just to mention um, the Veronica study. Uh, it was a study of fulvestrant with or without venetoclax, the BCL2 inhibitor. And we'll keep this part short, but suffice it to say it was a negative study. Uh, no benefit in clinical um, benefit rate, no benefit in progression-free survival, um, and really more toxicity as well. So, you know, that's something not to do, but I completely agree with you, uh, Giuseppe, that, you know, post CDK4-6, we really need uh, better agents for ER positive disease. And it looks like SIRDS really um, is where it holds a lot of promise. Uh, Sarah or Andrew, any, any comments on this, uh, where you think yeah. we're going to end up using SIRDS, et cetera? Well, if I could just comment on on the Veronica study for a moment, because I think you know we we I would have to say it is it is negative. I don't think one should say anything other than that. I, I was very disappointed that that was the case because I think um, that there is more to understand. I think there is there was a good rationale. I think um, we need to understand what it is about ER positive breast cancer that leads us to fail to kill it um, in the way that we. We, we can in, in the sort of ER negative forms of the disease. And I feel sure that if we just persist in trying to understand the underpinning biology of upregulation of those BCL2 family members, and there are a number of them better, and I think Jeff Lindemann had done that very well in his prior work, then I think there will be uh, subpopulations of this big disease area, this big subset that we can do better for with agents in this class. So I, I kind of hope this wasn't a flash in the pan where we um, had a great idea, did one test of it, weren't uh, gratified instantly and gave up. I think we need to do more, uh, think deeply, uh, reset and um, uh, see if we can move forward. I feel sure there is um, there is more to do here. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. You know, I, I think it's interesting to think back to several years ago when we kind of thought RB was going to be the story post CDK46, and it really looks like the mechanisms of resistance and what changes in tumors is quite varied. So just like how we talk about triple negative breast cancer not being one disease, I think post CDK46 ER positive is not one disease either. And so ultimately, we're probably going to do better if we, you know, fractionate this population out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. 
Sarah, what do you what do you think about the oral serves? Where where are you excited for them? Uh, where do you think we'll end up using them? Yeah, I've been very excited about them. I think we've been a little disappointed about the bioavailability of fulvestrant, and so we've been trying to do better. Um, but I think the challenge is that the data that we have for the CERTs today is really mostly from you know phase one and phase one expansions. And so the populations that have been evaluated have really been very heterogeneous. Uh, and so I think it makes it a little challenging to know how actually does an oral CERD compare to fulvestrant? We don't yet have the data from the randomized studies um, to know that. I think there's every reason to believe they are at least as good, if not better. Um, but I think we need to see those data. And there are some interesting emerging side effects from some of these drugs. Again, or generally, you know, from my experience, they've been well tolerated. But there are some interesting side effects that have emerged, including some bradycardia, visual disturbances. And so, you know, I think I want to see the larger data sets. I think we're hoping Hoping soon we'll have um, potentially the randomized Sanofi data with the amsinesterant and the elisesterant uh, randomized data versus endocrine choice from Emerald. So I think there's those data should be emerging soon to help us better understand. But I think to, to your point earlier about where will they go, um, you know, I know there are many first-line trials comparing CERD CDK to AI CDK. And while I think it's a, an important thing for us to study, I'm also a little cautious about it because, you know, we saw data from Parsifal that had suggested in endocrine-sensitive patients, maybe your choice of endocrine therapy doesn't matter um, with a CDK4-6 inhibitor. And so I think we need to learn more. You know, I think we're hoping they may prevent emergence of ESR1 mutations and, and maybe they're going to help extend PFS. But I think we need to know. And, you know, I know there's a lot of interest in also moving these agents into the adjuvant space and how we do that best. I think we'll we'll need to see. Uh, but, but I'm very hopeful about them. But But again, awaiting the randomized data. Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up a good point, too, about comparing apples to apples, right? You know, even the four studies that were presented at ASCO range from, you know, practically first and second line only and no prior, uh, you know, CDK and the two Palbo combinations with renodesterate and amsinesterate um, to heavily pretreated, um, you know, with H3B, et cetera. Any, any uh, comments from uh, others on this class of agents or what you're excited about? You know, uh, I, I would like to comment on my amsenescent strand data because finally, if you look at in terms of activity, when you combine with palbocyclib, you have something like 35% response rate and the clinical benefit rate of 70% and no grade three, four toxicity. So this is an important observation. So in the context of further development of these agents, should we explore them in a sequential treatment, or should we move them directly in the Arivan setting? Because, you know, any oral CERD has been developed primarily in order to overcome the resistance induced by SR1 mutation. And we know the attempt in the past to move a CERD in the Arivan setting. So I really believe that the new trials that are coming in the Arivan setting will give the response. Because in my opinion, I am not looking to a strong activity in the metastatic setting. I would like to have a more active agent in the Arivan setting with these new agents and the opportunity to deliver a CERD orally. It's a huge opportunity for our patients in the Arivan setting. Yeah, absolutely. 
I may direct another question at you, Andrew. You know, I also had the opportunity to see uh, Jennifer Litton's abstract on neoadjuvant talizaparib. Obviously, a small subset of patients, it was about 48 patients, but without chemotherapy and 24 weeks of talizaparib delivering a pathologic complete response rate of about 46%. I mean, I thought that was really astounding, uh, you know, especially for BRCA <clears throat> patients with BRCA mutations that maybe are younger patients and have more uh, time to live with the side effects of chemotherapy, this idea that, you know, could we pair spare them some chemotherapy. What, do, what did you think about that study? I thought it was a bit of a shame that we're not going to have more data of these patients follow long-term. Yeah, I think uh, I, I also found that a fascinating uh, abstract and presentation and great work. I think, again, it's a shame. And she was, uh, Jennifer was very clear that the, the reason things stopped was a commercial business decision by the sponsor and, and not through any uh, for any other sort of more scientific reason. I think we've got very interesting data from that study and also um, actually from Gepa-Ola, different context, but uh, the use of um, uh, alaparib in a, in a combination with chemotherapy with paclitaxel um, de-escalating the platinum, if you see what I mean, replacing it with alaparib, which both of which raise the question as to whether or not we can modify, remove or modify chemotherapy um, in BRCA mutation carriers uh, with the use of PARP inhibitors ahead of surgery. And I think there are a number of trials uh, that people will now wish to design um, uh, testing that, both of those questions, instead of chemotherapy or as a component with chemotherapy, removing perhaps some of the more toxic uh, elements. And, and the door is now open with proof of concept um, for that as a, as a result of, of that work. I have some concerns uh, about um, uh, telezoparib's impact on bone marrow uh, and uh, transfusion requirements and things, uh, which seem to be greater than we're experiencing perhaps with other PARP inhibitors. And, and so, you know, there are effects uh, on um, young women that are uh, you know, not insignificant if you're going into lower risk populations. Um, but I think we do need to do some of these studies with PARP inhibitors in that setting and see if we can de-escalate uh, the therapy in the lowest risk groups and, and perhaps those groups that were not included in Olympia. And, and there were there were lower risk patients excluded from Olympia who we could potentially be looking at uh, PARP inhibitor strategies for instead of uh, chemotherapy. And I know a number of groups are looking at those designs now. Yeah, I thought that was actually a, a large theme at ASCO this year was this right-sizing the therapy for the patient, whether it's de-escalation or escalation with the addition of PARP inhibitor, et cetera. But, you know, we also saw some data um, without chemotherapy with two HER2-targeted um, agents, um, you know, early on. And then we also saw an abstract from um, including a lot of advocates about talking to physicians about dose reductions and kind of um, really making sure that quality of life um, is, is paramount in everyone's mind as well. Sarah, did you have any uh, comments on that? And this, I really think theme over the past several years that we have a lot of agents in our tool bag, so to speak now, but really getting smart about who needs which one and making sure that we right size it for each patient in front of us. I think this is so critical because I think as we're getting better and better drugs that have more efficacy rather than just always adding on we need to think about how to you know subtract 
potentially to maintain efficacy, but diminish toxicity. And I think that is a huge theme, you know, just like, you know, Andrew was talking about the Neotala study, right? You know, can we potentially replace chemotherapy with a targeted drug now that we can see that it has efficacy? It's going to take time to, to sort through how to do that because we do need to preserve efficacy. But I think this is our movement. You know, if we, as we learn more about biomarker predictors of response, as we get better agents, um, I think we're going to be able to move in this direction, which is, you know, I think really exciting times. Yeah, absolutely. So in the last few minutes that we have, maybe uh, we'll go around the table and each person leave us with a, a parting word, something they're excited about seeing in the future or something we didn't touch on that you think we'd be remiss not to mention. Andrew, how about we uh, start with you? Oh, well, thank you for that opportunity. Well, you know, while I would want to strongly point out that the results that the group that I represented presented around Olympia are as relevant to hormone receptor positive breast cancer as they are to triple negative breast cancer. Um, I do think, you know, it is fantastic that within this form of the disease that is defined by its negativity, by what it isn't, that I think we now have a reason to seek a positive patient selection biomarker through genomic uh, genome sequencing of the germline. And we should really think about doing that much more um, and then designing uh, studies that you know go, go beyond this uh, for that population of patients we have a positive biomarker in, while remembering that we probably ought to sequence a lot more uh, patients who have hormone receptor positive disease because we've kind of uh, forgotten that they not infrequently have germline mutations. Great. Giuseppe, how about you? You know, I completely agree with Andrew. The most important data were the data of Olympia that we addressed a lot. But I also believe uh, we need to consider all the de-escalation trial. So it was of interest, the trial from the Chinese group, the SISUC trial, in which uh, uh, has been compared uh, trastuzumab plus endocrine therapy versus trastuzumab plus chemotherapy in a population of patients that were HR positive or 2 positive. Of course, the study was underpowered to demonstrate a benefit in overall survival, but the progression-free survival was quite similar. So I believe in the future, we need to better identify those patients who can do a de-escalation in the metastatic setting, also in the Arivan setting. If you look at the data of ADAPT-ER, in which a short exposure to, endo to endocrine therapy can modify also the biology of a cancer that may have a better prognosis. So the crescendo will be the future. And in this ASCO, we had escalation trial like the Olympia for very well-defined, according to precision medicine subgroup of patients, but also de-escalation trial in order to guarantee a better quality of life to our patients. Great. Absolutely well said. Sarah? I think just along those themes, I, I very much agree. I think we're really moving towards personalization. So whether it's using germline testing to select patients for therapeutics or genomic alterations, or even you know IHC markers now for ADC selection potentially, um, I think this is our, our movement forward is how can we best personalize care to improve outcomes and, and decrease toxicity. And I think we saw so much of that uh, at ASCO this year, which was exciting. 
Absolutely. I think I'll uh, build upon that theme that I also think access is a big issue, whether that's access to pdl one testing, access to BRCA testing. You know, there's been recent uh, data that certain minority groups are actually offered at BRCA testing less. So I think that's something that we're going to have to be very cognizant as a community to change to make sure that all patients have access to these same exciting therapies, uh, regardless of where they live or their background, ethnicity, et cetera. On behalf of uh, VJ Oncology, I'd like to thank you guys for listening, tuning in, and uh, having this chat with us, and also thank uh, Sarah, Andrew, and Giuseppe for joining me. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this post-ASCO breast cancer session with VJ Oncology. If you found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.